The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. One of the hallmarks of resiliency is self-awareness. Research tells us that even though the vast majority of us think we have a decent amount of self-awareness, self-awareness is actually a much more rare quality. It's estimated that only 10 to 15% of people actually fit the criteria. One psychologist explains, on a good day, 80% of us are lying to ourselves about whether we lie to ourselves. There are two different types of self-awareness, internal and external. And many people can be good at one and not so great at the other. But in order to be truly self-aware, we must be both internally self-aware, that's how clearly we see our own values, behaviors, strengths, weaknesses, and how we see ourselves fit into our environment. And we must also be externally self-aware, having an accurate understanding of how people see us in the world. Today's guest on this episode of Looking Up is one of the rare ones. He's worked really hard to truly be self-aware. He was legally known as Ron Artest before changing his name to Meta World Peace, and who is now known as Meta Sandiford Artest. I mean, I struggled with how to introduce him because part of me feels he needs no introduction at all. And another part of me feels he deserves a perfect introduction, one that I certainly won't be able to give justice to. But I'm going to try. Let me back up a bit. I'm a native Los Angelino. My team is and always will be the Lakers. And Meta World Peace is a former Laker. And in fact, he was one of my favorite Lakers. I have pictures to prove it. Like the time I got on the Megatron camera at the Staples Center with the homemade sign with his name on it. Yeah, of course he's one of my favorites because he was an amazing player. NBA champion, NBA all-star, NBA defensive player of the year, NBA all-rookie, the J. Walter Kennedy Citizenship Award, and so on. But it's also because I was in grad school, well, actually in my postdoctoral psychology fellowship at UCLA, when he made the winning shot. Well, actually, I was lucky enough to be at the Staples Center that night. But anyway, the Lakers won the 2010 championship, and the first person Meta World Peace thanked was his psychiatrist. If you guys haven't watched the press conference, I highly recommend, no, as an optimism doctor, I prescribe you to pull up the clip and the press conference and watch one of the most raw, pure forms of human joy I've ever seen. It's contagious. Warning, it will bring you joy. Meta was ahead of his time. He paved the way for talking about mental health in the athlete world. Even just a decade ago, thanking his psychiatrist didn't get him the applaud or empowerment it might today. Instead, he was met with laughter and comments about being crazy. But he stuck to it and built the road for so many other players to come. Meta is candid, intense, generous beyond belief. After spending years working towards winning a championship, the first thing he did was auction off his championship ring to raise money for mental health charities. What I find amazing is his transparency and openness to share the real, raw, truthful, and extremely hard work, no matter how beautiful or ugly, that he's put into his journey to get where he is today, which is self-acceptance and, well, peace a self-aware man from the projects in Queensbridge, New York, 
with struggles and major accolades, appreciating his blessings and open about grieving his deepest losses, whether that's from self-destruction or losing his friend Kobe. A husband and a businessman constantly working towards being a better version of himself. I was talking to my brother and I just realized that yesterday was the 10-year anniversary of the winning shot and the championship win, right? That's so cool. I know, I know. I wish we could have won a little more, but it's okay. That's okay. I was happy to be there. So that was, I'm an LA native. So for me, that was basically basketball is the only sport I I would say I like 60% understand. Oh. (laughs) Um, And Lakers are the only team I give a shit about. So... (laughs) And you were, when you were on the Lakers, you were my favorite Laker. And so that was, and especially just not, not just because of that, but also because of everything you stand for. And then as I grew older and got into the stuff that I'm into, I admire you even more. So this is so exciting for me. Thank you. Appreciate it. We always start every single episode with sort of a few rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little more intimately and for people to kind of get to know you outside of all the things that they already know you for. So without much thought or judgment, whatever comes to mind for you. First question, is there a book or a quote or a piece of advice that has changed the way you live your life? Being from New York, we grew up amongst a couple different type of faiths and religions. So most of my teachings came from home. We grew up in a Baptist church. Uh, also had most of my friends. We were influenced by five percenters and a little bit of Nation of Islam and different things like that. So we had a lot of different teachers in our neighborhood. So I learned a lot from a lot of the older generation who was pretty much just trying to teach us about being aware and staying out of trouble and the importance on loving yourself and treating yourself like you're a part of the earth and treating yourself and treating the woman with respect. And a lot of things go over your head. A lot of things you don't implement, but a lot of the things you can remember. Yeah. So that's where most of, most, most of my teachings didn't really come from a book. Yeah. We wasn't really reading like that books, you know, a lot in our neighborhoods. So it just came from people that experienced things. Yeah. And people that inspired you. The second question is, People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. People think I've changed, but <laughs> I'm actually the same. <laughs> I like that. I actually read somewhere that you said, like, no, I'm not misunderstood. Who I am is a product of everything that I've been through. Yeah, nobody's perfect. Yeah, exactly. Not at all. Okay, use three words to describe yourself as a teenager, like your high school years. Three words. Shy, focused, and chippy. I like that. Okay. The last time you cried. Kobe died. Mm-hmm. Last song you listened to all the way through. Veterans Memorial by Prodigy. Okay. Without much thought or judgment, three things that have brought you joy or happiness today. Just they could be really big or small. My children my wife, and earth. I really love 
you know, connecting with the air, the trees, the plants, just thinking about what that actually means to us. Beautiful. Yeah. And so, so good for our mental health. People don't get it, but it's like literally it's free. It's right out there. And research shows that just spending on average two hours outside, just two hours a week outside on average, you know, really helps to increase positive mood and decrease stress and anxiety. And we are lucky enough to be, you're in LA, right? Right now? Yeah, I'm in LA. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know sometimes it's harder for others, but we're lucky enough to be here where nature is everything. It's just, it's amazing. Do you consider yourself an optimist? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist. What does optimism mean to you? It means you have a chance. It means every human has a chance to me. It means, because we're all very, very special, uh, crammed, we're pretty much crammed in, on earth because we're, we're really explorers. This is very much a test for us down here. Uh, I don't think our creator will let us see stars if one day we're not going to be there. Mm-hmm. Or if that's not actually a place where we are. Absolutely. To me, it means to dream and stuff. Yeah. And possibility. Yes, absolutely. That's what we should be focused on as humans. Possibilities, exploring, curiosity. That's what we should be focused on. I love that. I know you grew up one of 10 children in Queensbridge at the height of the crack wars in Queens in the 80s. I would love for you to talk a little bit about your childhood. What was that like? And how did being from Queensbridge shape you and who you are today? Well, I think being from Queensbridge, I could have easily been back in jail, definitely. Jail, uh, there's there's a couple of things that are, that stands out Mm -hmm. when you're growing up in these neighborhoods. Families, one. Friends, jail, crack, school. Music? Music, right? It's a couple things on the positive side and the negative side that stand out. But there's a couple things on the negative side. If you go, you ain't coming back. I'm very, very lucky because it was plenty of times where I could have been in juvenile delinquent facilities because just people who I was around, the way I was at. But, you know, I had a couple wake-up calls. I had lots of wake-up calls. Yeah. It's a place where you don't want to be, you know. It's not, the place is not even rented. Mm-hmm. It's a federal housing project. Before it was built, there was a lot of white people there, actually. Then black people moved in. Um, I don't know how it happened. And, you know, it's a, we don't even rent. The government pays for that. Your tax dollars pay, our tax dollars pay for federal housing projects, right? So it's not a place where you live and. Sometimes living in there, you don't understand that. And it's comfortable to the credit of the taxpayer. Thank you, you know, because strong, sturdy buildings, heater for the winter time, you know, uh, basketball courts, grass. There's a lot of great things, but the only problem is it's not a big focus on education, family, and, and exiting that place. It's not a big focus on that. So how do you think you stayed out of trouble? Was it you had some inspiring figures? Um, was it basketball? I know I, I read somewhere that a counselor of yours actually suggested that you get into a sport. And that's kind of how you decided to get into basketball. I know you played a lot with your dad or what, what do you think it was? 
it was a lot. And I had a social worker at the age of 13. My energy was more on fighting, getting in trouble. I was already playing basketball, but they advised me to keep playing basketball because it was the one thing that I focused on on the court and I couldn't get in trouble because I was always trying to perfect the game, trying to win. So my time was spent trying to get better. That very, very inspiring social worker. Sometimes things don't get through to your head because you're a teenager and you know it all as a teenager. Yeah. You know, so you can remember now you're, I'm 40 years old and I'm like, okay, really appreciate the words people said to me. I think it's amazing though that you were so open to that. And that's kudos to you. I mean, that's credit to you for being open. And it sounds like you have been your whole life too. Well, I have to because in our situation, I, I, I can speak like on the history of African-Americans, but really Africans. But the history is when they took the slaves, and this is a good time to talk about it, especially under the climate. Right. Right. So when they, you know, when they took the slaves, and I don't think, and, and we don't know because we don't know all the history of our, we don't even have our art. We don't know our history. A lot of it was burned. A lot of it was destroyed. Or, or people still have certain pieces actually right now to this day. But when you, when you were shipped from Africa, was, a lot of people thought they were going to the uh, entrance of the boat that they were going to America to help and to just build a new life. But when you, get, when you got on the boat, it was like, you know, like shackles. If, if that happened to me right now, which I would fight first. Yeah. Before I let anybody shackle me. Well, if that happened right now, then my children are going to be looking for a parent, right? So when the parent is gone, the kid is, they're not reporting back and sending messages. Hey, we have your dad. He's in handcuffs. He's going to be a slave for a hundred years. Just so you know. So make sure you do the right thing in school. It was none of that. They were just ripped away from their family completely without nothing. Correct. Right. So when that happens, Imagine if your child was ripped away from you or if you was ripped away from your parents, right? So oh. you're not going to have the guidance. You know, you're not going to have the know-how that you need to get an education or you need to be a good person or you need to be a good mom. You're just left with trauma. Yeah, you get left with trauma. You, you know, I think in, in that stage, you start developing the trauma. Yeah. Right? So now when you bring it over here and then 200, 300 years later, they kind of, no more chains, but you're still under... The surveillance of America, you still have no reference points on how to raise a family. Right. You have a reference point on how to survive. You don't see a lot of whole Black families, you know, so we don't even have a place to go. Right. Like, where is home? <laughs> homeless. I got, 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 a lot of, got, got money, made millions, but homeless. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, you know, that's, that's an interesting place to be in, but we survivors, we grind. Resilient. Resilient, our soul. And you know, the, the, my, 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 my goodness or my soul is not going to be left here. I'm taking it with me when I go. <laughs> taking it with me. <laughs> um, you know, but you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's the reality of the situation. I mean, you know, you keep hearing and, and people are so upset, rightfully so, and saying enough is enough, but enough was enough hundreds of years ago. Of course. It's nice to see that you take it off the, off the feed and you're really out there and you're marching and you are such an inspiration to so many and especially our generation or the same generation and the generation below us too. And also I see that I think you're really proud of the youth. I mean, you, you know, said you guys are the kings and the queens. Yes. And, and there is real change being made. It, it, it is real change being made. And, you know, me, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a little bit stubborn, like many other human beings. And, 
You know, I, I, I personally don't, I mean, I appreciate the support, but I don't really want it. Cause like, I want to fight for myself. And, and quite frankly, we do go out there to those protests and people are getting hit mm-hmm. and I, I'm not going to blame it all on the police. I, I, to, to this day, I can't blame it all on police. I blame like, because it's some, like my best friend is a cop. My best friend, she's a female black cop and she loves it. When you say cops, right. police, like, you know, somebody was to, you know, hurt my friend, then I'm leaving my home and I'm going to find who hurt my friend. I would not expect any less of you. I feel like you've always <laughs> marched to your own pace and your own beat. And that's something that I really admire about you is you do what you believe in and you wear your heart on your sleeve and you're super intense and you feel a lot. Yeah. And I think that's being authentic. What do you think drives your excellence or is it the root of your excellence? As a kid, was it about just getting out of Queensbridge? Was it about not liking losing? Are you competitive? Like what, what drives you and your excellence? It's hard to say, uh, you know, like for me, I just tried to be perfect, you know, but it just what it didn't happen. <laughs> the person I wanted to, honestly, the person I wanted to be didn't happen. And, Who did you want to be? I gave up. Yeah, I wanted to, you know, I have a family and I have a family, <laughs> but I'm saying I wanted to, you know, you, you know, you stay with one family forever mm-hmm. and I'm happy where I'm at now. But the, the, when I was 13, when I even younger, I had an idea on who I was going to be. Right. I was never a kid around the neighborhood that was like, oh, he's fly. He's the coolest. I was the tallest. I could play ball. Right. So when I got a little bit of fame, that went to my head. I thought mm-hmm. that was me. I'm like, oh, I'm a St. John star. I'm on the New York Post as a high school kid. I got money. I'm an NBA. Oh, this is me. Right. And it's like, darn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you learn. Like oh, tricked I, you. I tricked me. Mm-hmm. You, I, tricked I you. you tricked you. Know, you tricked like, you. But being humble and stuff like that, that's what I like. And I like to have fun. Mm-hmm. Come across the arrogant sometimes. But, you know, I, I try to be humble. But, you know, I like to have fun. I like to just yeah. be myself when I can. But So then with that being said, in terms of excellence, I don't really strive for that anymore. I strive to be the best person I can be right now in this moment. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I saw that your dad was a big influence for you basketball-wise, for sure, at least. It seems like you guys would play rain, shine, snow. It didn't matter. You'd be out there on the courts and he would not go easy on you. Yeah. It wasn't like he was like, I'm going to let my son win. Yeah, no. It was the opposite than that. <laughs> he was toughening you up. It was, uh, yeah. Me, not only because my dad, he gave me a lot of spankings too, right? Mm. So, and my mom gave me spankings too. So when my dad was taking me out on the court, I knew he loved me because I mean, I love my dad. Like he, every spanking I got, I'm just like, all right, I still love my dad. Shit, it hurts. But so when we out on the court and I and I'm starting to lose to my dad, now I'm like, oh, I get a chance to whoop my dad ass mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen a lot. It, only, it started to happen when I was 13. I started to beat him. I'm like, oh wow, I can beat my dad. And then when I really started to beat him, and I would never let him beat me for a <laughs> long time. I would never let him beat me. 14, 15 years old. Wow. And that, so, you know, my dad was built like me, but even more muscles, <laughs> you know? So when I was able to beat him, I'm like, okay. You're like, <laughs> I want to keep going with this. This feels good. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> and then, you know, after a while, you know, I just, um, I, I would let him beat me sometimes, but we just stopped playing. He would always ask me, it was so funny. 
when he when I became 16 and 17, when I was like becoming an all-American, all city. Yeah. And then my dad would be like, hey son, let's play some ball. And I'm like, <laughs> Dad, not today. <laughs> I don't feel like beating you today. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Was there a specific moment that led you to change your name to Meta World Peace? I mean, I'm just, I'm sure this is what you thought of, but I'm just putting it together in my head now. But like just seeing the words world peace on the back of a jersey at a NBA game really like psychologically helps people think about world peace. So it was part of it about that. Just like I'm going to use my platform and my name, literally the jersey on my back to talk about that and at least put it out there because you can't see the words world peace and psychologically not think about world peace. Absolutely. It's so powerful. But you know, I mean, so like, so the entertainment, so for me it was this, when I was an NBA, I wanted to become an entertainer. I wanted to become cool. You know, really that's not what I really wanted when I think about it. But as I got older, I'm just like, okay, I don't want to continue to make a buffoon out of myself because honestly I would do anything on television. Mm-hmm. You know, I went on Kevin Hart movie. I was in low shorts, funny outfit. Like I, I, I would do it, but I'm saying, is that really helping me like doing buffoon stuff? So I said, okay, I can't do, I, I really enjoy comedy. I really, but I said, I got to do something different. So when I changed the world peace, when I, I had Meta, I picked from about a thousand different uh, Buddhist names, you know, Meta and Sutra, all these names. And <laughs> yeah, when we got down to it, I didn't have a last name. And, and I said, okay. World peace. It just sounds so good. Yeah. And it had nothing to do with world peace. When I picked the name, I'm like, this sounds cool. This sounds cool. It was, but when I, when I changed it and I played in the game, I'm like, oh no, please don't go out there with this <laughs> stupid looking name on the back of your shirt. I was super embarrassed my first game. You had like some regret right away in the, the beginning. Right away. Right away. I was like, this is the dumbest thing <laughs> you've ever did in your life. Oh, uh, But then it's, it's so incredible because there's like so many things that I feel like you did because you, maybe it was on an impulse or maybe it was just, you were acting with how you truly felt kind of what you said. Like, I only do things that like I feel. And then in retrospect, they're like life-changing and brilliant. Like literally it's brilliant to see world peace running around at the Staples Center, like the words. And also like when you won the championship and the first person that you thanked was your psychiatrist. Like that might just be like, you were really thankful and you wanted to, you know, put that out there. But actually what you did was you just helped completely destigmatize the idea of seeking out mental health help. Like highlight for me, when I saw that, I was just like, amazing. Can't stop playing that over. It was so raw. Pretty much you're the first person that started talking candidly and openly about mental health, like in the pro athlete world. And you really paved the way for so many. Was there anyone that inspired you to be open about it? That was sort of your time or came before you? You know, one of the things is like, you know, when you, if you're being bullied or teased or whatever, it's like, whatever, I'm going to go see therapy. I don't care what people think anymore. I don't care. I got tired of that. Right. I think that was one of the things that made me tough because I, I didn't care what people thought about me anymore. And then also, I would say Dennis Rodman. Mm-hmm. You know, just him telling telling his story when he was on Oprah a long time ago, and he was talking about how his dad was never there, his mom left at three years old. I think he grew up with his auntie, or, or maybe something crazy was happening. He was my favorite player, and I'm like, wow. I'm like, I think I was ten years old or twelve, maybe thirteen, and I remember watching it, and I'm just like, 
he went through all of that. Man, I love that guy. I have so much respect for him. I didn't know that much about him until I watched The Last Dance. Like, amazing. Like, I couldn't stop thinking about him. You've probably talked about this a million times, and maybe you don't want to, but the malice at the palace, for people listening that don't know, because I don't know, the listeners of my podcast might not know, a fan threw a drink at you. You charge the stands and get into a brawl with a fan, and you actually hit the wrong fan. And then that cost you your suspension. And other team members came to bat for you. And sort of, it became this like brawl. But besides that, that's not what stands out to me. What stands out to me about you is that years later, you reach out to the original fan that threw the drink and you cleared the air and you guys found common ground and discussed what you both had been through or were going through. And that's amazing. Like who does that? I'm sure you shocked many people with that, but that's just the kind of big hearted. I don't know someone other than you that is so authentic. And I can't think of a more resilient person that I'm interviewing on this whole podcast series than you. And I just like that to me, it wasn't the malice in the palace that stood out to me. It was what you did after. Was it on a whim or had you been thinking about it? Yeah, because I, I, I was trying, I mean, naturally, I don't have hate in my heart for people. Um, maybe someone who maybe disrespected me. I, you know, I got, I keep them in the back of my head. I got a special place for certain people, but naturally I, 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 I have a good heart. So I, I was walking around after the brawl upset for years, depressed. Uh, and just like thinking everybody hates me. And I said, you know, I, I just can't be feeling like this. Would you say that that was your darkest moment? Or biggest no. struggle? No. The brawl? The like after. What was your dark? I mean, because when we talk about optimism, people think optimism just means we're skipping through fields wearing rose-colored glasses and the world's perfect and everything's great. And we only think positive thoughts. And as an optimism doctor, I always like to say, like, I call bullshit on that. That's not how humans are. We experience the full range of emotion. And a true optimist is someone that sees the roadblocks, they see the setbacks, they see the mistakes, they're very mindful and aware of them. They just see them as temporary and something that they have the power and ability to overcome. So it's this idea of resiliency. You're an optimist because you're resilient. So what has been like one of your biggest struggles or darkest moments that you've grown from? Darkest moments, I would say um, the the domestic incident that I had with my ex-wife, that was like really dark moment because that was televised. And I I just wear my... It was, I had a lot of dark moments. <laughs> like Some of the ones also was the self-destructing, which was like a consistent over time. It didn't happen in one day. Mm-hmm. It happened over time and mm-hmm. self-destructing, literally knowing, knowing what's happening to yourself. And still doing it. And throwing it all away. Like mm-hmm. It took me a long time to throw away. I played 18 years, but if you look at my career, I literally threw it away and still have some stuff to show for my talent, which is like not, it's not unique because usually when you mess it up and you self-destruct, you don't have anything. I mean, I have like things that I personally wanted, you know, defensive player of the year, NBA championship, all-star, NBA, all third, third team, all NBA, two first team, all defense, couple other ones, citizenship award. But I literally threw away a bunch of other accolades. I threw away a bunch of other opportunities, which is okay. 
you know, but that's like a dark point because I worked my whole life, well, up until the age of 19, or up until the age of 19, I worked from eight years old to 19 years old to get to the age of 23 for the most part. I was doing a bunch of stuff in between that I should not have been doing and stuff after that I should not have been doing, but you throw it away. And I always try to tell athletes, don't throw it away. But I understand what you're going through in this moment. I understand like you have pride and you have ego. I understand that. But don't self-destruct because when you're 40 years old, you're going to only be looking at one (laughs) all-star. You're going to only be looking at one defensive player of the year. You know, you want to be looking at, you want to reach your potential, right? You want to reach your potential and nothing is worth throwing that away for. Mm -hmm. I I know what you mean. And I think like within the optimism work, I always like to tell people, people are always more interested in what they can have and what they can dream to work towards. And they just always want, they're very comfortable with the, oh, I want this, I want this and I want that. And people very rarely take the same time and effort and space to think about like, what is something that you currently have today that you've worked so hard for that you've made come true and you have today and like you have to celebrate it. Otherwise, there's no point in continuing to make your dreams a reality if you don't stop and give yourself the celebration, you know, of I did this. I think we just breeze through that a lot, you know, especially people that strive to be perfect and that want to make something out of their life. And once they've tasted that, they want more and they want more. And so I think like also just appreciating in the moment when you're in it and you're really in it and you're you know, you won the championship and like giving yourself time in that moment to be like, holy shit. Well, you know, sometimes people reach out to me. I'm sure people saw, my, you know, my story. So hopefully that could inspire a few to stay on path. Because there's a lot of people like me where you're not that talented, but you're a hard worker. So you being a hard worker, you can become a superstar, right? So, I mean, I was kind of going into the, the role Yeah, I was on TNT. I had ESPN commercial had my own shoe, Carl's Jr. commercial about to come out. And that's hard work. That's not like Tracy McGrady or Kobe Bryant. They got hard work and talent. They got both, right? But I was becoming a, a star, you know, and it's like, okay, you threw it away, man. They didn't even show the ESPN commercials or the TNT commercials. And that, that, comes, with, that comes with it. The commercials, the, the stardom, the endorsements, it's positive stuff. It's not a bad thing. That's what comes with the package, you know? And, you know, for, for you know, to throw it away is like, you, you know, you've got to be pretty ballsy, right? To just say, ah, whatever. Right. I don't care. So I always try to tell people, and, and, I, and I really get like, I have a real soft spot for people that receive awards and, and just doing great things. Because I'm just like, especially guys like at my level, like mm-hmm. LeBron is like, great. But there's people right now that are getting three-time All-Stars, you know, four-time All-NBA. Like, another level under, but hell of a career. Yes. Yeah. Right? So like, I, I kind of look at people like that. I just like, good, good job, you know, good job. <laughs> That's amazing. 
I've done a lot of work professionally in the visualization realm. So I actually did my entire dissertation in grad school on the idea of building optimism and using sensory-based visual imagery. And most of the research at the time, that was a decade ago now as well, but most of the research at the time came from sports psychology. So I'm wondering, did you ever use like visualization and mental rehearsal in your practice? I had, what, 20, 30 therapists mm-hmm. all of my time. And everybody had different teachings. Vis- visualization was one of them. But the, those are the levels that you want to re- reach when you're doing therapy. Because a lot of the early levels is more helping you work through frustration, depression, anxiety. But when you get past that, you want to continue your classes because you want to get to the visualization. You want to get to a point where you don't have any issues and you still want to do the therapy so you can get to the next level. You can get to the higher power, which is breathing, attaching yourself to other things. That's why you always want to continue your therapy even after things are good. And your self-growth, yeah. Yeah, you always, always. What about like in practice or with coaches? I know they used it a lot in golf and some basketball coaches used it in swimming. I know Michael Phelps coach used it a lot, but they didn't really... Any of, the, any of your coaches really use like the idea of visualizing the shot. Yeah. So you would get some coaches that would say, you know, see you going in, you know, yeah. see, you going yeah. in, see yourself winning. And that's therapy, but you don't really understand, but that's therapy. Basketball, you need real-time therapy because you don't have time to sit, cross your legs and meditate. So you got to find out ways to move fast with, you know, uh, passion and some anxiety, but you want to take that anxiety away. You want to take anything that you're worried about. You want to bottle that up. Right. Package it, put it somewhere else and just focus on the game. And focus on the game and try to stay in the moment. That's meditative. Definitely. You played under the great Phil Jackson, who arguably could be the best coach of all time. And he's the Zen master. He seems to have brought such a powerful way of life to the game. What was that like? And are there any meaningful things he taught you that benefit your life that you still kind of think about or use? Phil Phil is just an amazing guy. I mean, like to bring that to the team, because usually you'll take your faith or your religion and you do it when you go home. Like that's your release, right? But with Phil, you know, he brought that to us. Yeah, from home. He was your home kind of. Yeah, very much so. I mean, to, to, that, that's risky. I, I don't know any coach in the history of coaching that brought something that people needed. It was bigger than the game. Like, this is life-changing. Meditation. Um, sage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is life-changing. And for him to bring that to the game, who's, who's doing that? He, that means he cares about you. That means he, he cares deep enough about his players that he's going to say, the meditation is much more important than watching film today. The meditation is much more important than me getting on you about something you didn't do. Today, we're going to make you a better player or person uh, spiritually. And when we retire, you never have to call me again, but I gave you something. Wow. He's given all his players something amazing. If you look at all the players that played for Phil, yeah. we all been we all been touched. What an honor, like really, yes, to have definitely. been just under his presence. Like, it's amazing. So losing Kobe, there's something about it that still does not feel right. I have cried about it as recently as like a week ago. It just feels awful. And, but there was something like really moving about the fact that one man 
The power of one man brought an entire world, the whole earth mourned for him. And I've never seen anything like that. I mean, like all different countries, you know, people were just like, you felt it. It was palpable. I mean, of course I was here in LA, but you knew him personally and he was like family to you. How are you doing? I know grief comes in waves and sometimes it's easier to carry than other times, but that doesn't mean you're not carrying it. So it's just weird. Honestly, like it happened too quick. I mean, I cried. I, 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 was, I was confused. Some days I woke up and I forgot Kobe wasn't here. Like, it was like, oh, Kobe not here? My goodness. And then some days you'll watch Kobe on, on, on film, on YouTube, and you see, and you'll be watching like it's in real time. And it's like, he's really not here. I had a lot of waves emotionally where I was crying. I was, and it was, it, was, it was really difficult. And I'm like, how do you get through this? It's, I don't know how to get through it. You know, so I said, just do it, whatever you feel is right. That was not, that was not an easy one. Um, that was, could have had a heart attack. Like it was, it was really unreal. I mean, it's just like shocking. It was hard as a optimism doctor to find any optimism after that. And I feel like after Kobe's death, I don't know, maybe it's just a, heebie-jeebie spiritual thing I'm, I think about, but it just seems like absolutely nothing in the world has been right since Kobe left. And it's just... You know, it was bad. That was the start of something really bad and COVID and then this yes, thing. Yes. Just because so many of us are still hurting and we probably will for a long time, sometimes hearing about positive memories from someone that was so close to him really like helps us find solace and puts a smile on our face something you think of with Kobe that makes you smile that could help us smile too. So if there's anything that comes up for you. He was a great writer. I always told him like, man, you're an amazing writer. And his books, I remember going to his office after our after our careers were over. And I went to his office to go check him out. And I went to go, actually I bought seven jerseys and I got them all signed. I said, Kobe, <laughs> You know, I never asked you for anything, and I need to find these jerseys. So, all all four of my kids, my ex wife at the time, who but I said I'm gonna get you a jersey. Yeah. I really love Kobe. We love Kobe. My dad and my mom. I got seven jerseys, and when I went down to the office, he just signed them. He was signing away, and I'm like, damn, this is amazing. <laughs> you know, I, I played with him for four years, but I'm like, this is still amazing. To me. Yeah. So, so I get, you know, and then we'd be talking and he had about seven stacks of books. And you know, if you ever wrote a book, you got to do edits and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, he said, I'm doing these books and we're going to create magic in the books. That's what he said. And I'm like, what? I, I guess that's cool. <laughs> and I'm like, what's all those sticky notes? He said, yeah, those are edits. And we make edits. And I read it. So he, he's reading all, he's reading everything. Doing it himself. Yeah. I don't know the whole in, in and out, but I know he was, there was a lot of sticky notes. It was on his desk. And I thought, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Cause me, I'm doing digital marketing mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a third party bridge for digital marketing and different things like that. And I'm doing my thing and he's doing his thing. And I was just like, wow, that's so cool that you're doing something else. And then I, I had little frustrations and well, what I was doing that I, I was talking to him about. I didn't know if I can do it. He just told me to hang in there, keep going. And I would, I would update him like, I'll update him like once every three months mm-hmm. on like what I'm doing just to like 
And he was really encouraging. You know, he's really, really encouraging. So amazing. So your new business, X versus X. So it helps to connect sport enthusiasts to find a new way to build community and common ground. Is that right? Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about that and why you built it and how you came up with it and what is the most powerful thing about it? Yeah, definitely. So X versus X is all about competition. You want to, like, you, you, you know, you, you, you want to play against people other than this everyday same person you play against. So on the app, you'll be able to discover other people. There's a lot of great uh, opportunities to play uh, against, you know, talented people. And then some people don't want to play against a really aggressive player. So we got it on the app where you can play ultra competitive, competitive or just recreational. You go on the app, you can create a game. So it's like helping people find pickup games as well. Yeah, you'll find pickup games. We not only do we do pickup games, but we also do showcase games. And when people think of showcase games, they think of all oh, the best, the pros, college, high school. No, we do regular showcase games. You know, uh, you could be a recreational player. We do showcase games and we track your stats for you. And that's the cool thing about us. We want to make sure in 10 years from now, you can look back. And like to see for yourself even how you've improved. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not just pros. Right. That's so cool. So kind of switching gears, the last couple of questions are, we always end this podcast with looking up. And so what's looking up for you? What's in the near future? What's something that I know you have X versus X? And is there anything else that people should look out for that you're working on? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think people, I would like people to look out for artestmanagementgroup.com. And you go on Artest Management Group, you'll get a chance to see everything that we're working on. So we have like some investments and we have an incubator, which we're trying to work with our founders and help their companies. We have our own in-house companies. You can look at the team, diverse team. So yeah, artestmanagementgroup.com, you know, give feedback and start engaging with us. Be great. That's awesome. And what's something you're looking forward to or that you're optimistic about or hopeful about for the near future? I think something I'm looking forward to are, you know, the youth still continuing to push forward and change the, the ways and the values that we once had and continuing to be a mentor to the youth from all over across the borders, you know, not just here in America, you know, not just family, but other families, you know, yes. so I'm really looking forward to continuing being a mentor. I love that. The very last thing that we do on the Looking Up podcast is I, if we were together, you would pick this card yourself. But since we're not and we're doing this at a safe distance and virtually, I'm going to pick it for you. But we pick a card from my Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards. These are 52 cards that I have written. Each one has a holistic or science-based prompt or suggestion that actually works to increase resiliency and optimism. So I'm picking one for you and it's kind of like your homework for the day. Okay, random card. I have no idea. Let's see. Develop a morning ritual. What is the first thing you do when you wake up? Does it make you feel good, motivated, and centered? If so, keep it up. If not, it's time to have some fun and create a new first of the day routine. So do you have a morning routine or a ritual? What do you do when you first wake up? I wake up and I check my emails <laughs> and I get online and I, you know, talk to the, all my team members and say, okay, how is everything going? Do you need to have a morning ritual, something from a holistic health yes. point of view, which is a, whether it's meditation or working out. 
research really shows that whatever you do in the first of the morning, whatever your mood is, really actually impacts the mood for the rest of the day. So it's the perfect time to have control over something that you do that makes you feel really good and centers you. And so I'm super excited to hear back from you at some point and check in with me and tell me what ritual you developed or thing that you started doing in the morning that feels good. For me, I just wake up in the morning before I even talk to anybody, before I change out of my pajamas and I put music on and I just dance. And it's like my morning ritual that helps. So I want to know what yours is <laughs> later. Tell me in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's great chatting with you. And it I'll was follow so up. good chatting. Yeah, please do keep in touch. I had such a good time. Tell your wife I say hi. Absolutely. Okay. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Shaw Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.